Chapter 7 of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fanu Jahangiri. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 7. Oh, Margaret, cried her aunt next morning, such a most unfortunate thing has happened. I could not get you alone. The most unfortunate thing was not very serious. One of the flats in the owned block opposite had been taken furnished by the Wilcox family. Coming up, no doubt, in the hope of getting into London society. That Mrs. Mont should be the first to discover the misfortune was not remarkable, for she was so interested in the flats that she watched their every mutation with unwearying care. In theory, she despised them. They took away that old-world look, they cut off the sun, flats, house a flashy type of person. But if the truth had been known, she found her visits to Wickham Palace twice as amusing since Wickham Mansions had arisen, and would in a couple of days learn more about them than her nieces in a couple of months, or her nephew in a couple of years. She would stroll across and make friends with the porters, and inquire what the rents were, exclaiming, for example, What? A hundred and twenty for a basement? You'll never get it. And they would answer, One can but try, madam. The passenger lifts, the provision lifts, the arrangement for coals, a great temptation for a dishonest porter, were all familiar matters to her, and perhaps a relief from the politico-economical-aesthetic atmosphere that drained the schlegels. Margaret received the information calmly, and did not agree that it would throw a cloud over poor Helen's life. Oh, but Helen isn't a girl with no interests, she explained. She has plenty of other things and other people to think about. She made a false start with the Wilcoxes, and she'll be as willing as we are to have nothing more to do with them. For a clever girl, dear, how very oddly you do talk. Helen have to have something more to do with them, now that they're all opposite. She may meet that pole in the street. She cannot very well not bow. Of course she must bow. But look here, let's do the flowers. I was going to say, the will to be interested in him has died, and what else matters? I look on that disastrous episode, over which you were so kind, as the killing of a nerve in Helen. It's dead, and she'll never be troubled with it again. The only things that matter are the things that interest one. Bowing, even calling, and leaving cause, even at dinner party, we can do all those things to the Wilcoxes if they find it agreeable. But the other thing, the one important thing, never again. Don't you see? Mrs. Mont did not see, and indeed Margaret was making a most questionable statement that any emotion, any interest once vividly aroused can wholly die. I also have the honor to inform you that the Wilcoxes are bored with us. I didn't tell you at the time. It might have made you angry, and you had enough to worry you. But I wrote a letter to Mrs. W. and apologized for the trouble that Helen had given them. She didn't answer it. How very rude. I wonder, or was it sensible? No, Margaret. Most rude. In either case, one can class it as reassuring. Mrs. Mount sighed. 
She was going back to Swanage on the morrow, just as her nieces were wanting her most. Other regrets crowded upon her. For instance, how magnificently she would have caught Charles if she had met him face to face. She had already seen him giving an order to the porter, and very common he looked in a tall hat. But unfortunately his back was turned to her, and though she had cut his back, she could not regard this as a telling snow. But you will be careful, won't you? she exhorted. Oh, certainly. Fiendishly careful. And Helen must be careful, too. Careful over what? said Helen, at that moment coming into the room with her cousin. Nothing, said Margaret, seized with a momentary awkwardness. Careful over what? And Julie? Mrs. Mott assumed a cryptic air. It is only that a certain family whom we know by name but do not mention, as you said yourself last night after the concert, have taken the flat opposite from the Mathesons, where the plants are in balcony. Helen began some laughing reply and then disconcerted them all by blushing. Mrs. Mont was so disconcerted that she exclaimed, What, Helen? You don't mind them coming, do you? And deepened the blush to crimson. Of course I don't mind, said Helen, a little crusty. It is that you and Meg are both so absurdly grave about it, when there's nothing to be grave about at all. I'm not grave, protested Margaret, a little cross in her turn. Well, you look grave, doesn't she, Frida? I don't feel grave. That's all I can say. You're going quite on the wrong tack. No, she does not feel grave, echoed Mrs. Mott. I can bear witness to that. She disagrees. Hark! interrupted Fräulein Mossebach. I hear Bruno entering the hall. For Herr Liesek was due at the Wickham Palace to call for the two younger girls. He was not entering the hall. In fact, he did not enter it for quite five minutes. But Frida detected a delicate situation and said that she and Helen had much better wait for Bruno down below and leave Margaret and Mrs. Munt to finish arranging the flowers. Helen acquiesced. But, as if to prove that the situation was not delicate, really, she stopped in the doorway and said, Did you say the Matheson's flat, Aunt Julie? How wonderful you are! I never knew that the woman who laced too tightly his name was Matheson. Come, Helen, said her cousin. Go, Helen, said her aunt, and continued to Margaret almost in the same breath. Helen cannot deceive me. She does mind. Oh, hush, breathed Margaret. Frida, I'll hear you, and she can be so tiresome. She minds, persisted Mrs. Mott, moving thoughtfully about the room and pulling the dead chrysanthemums out of the vases. I know she'd mind, and I'm sure a girl ought to be. Such an experience, such awful coarse-grained people. I know more about them than you do which you forget, and if Charles had taken you that motor-drive, well, you'd have reached the house a perfect wreck. Oh, Margaret, you don't know what you are in for. They're all bottled up against the drawing-room window. There's Mrs. Wilcox, I've seen her. There's Paul, there's Evie, who is a minx. There's Charles, I saw him to start with, and who would an elderly man with a moustache and a copper-colored face be? Mr. Wilcox, possibly. I know it, and there is Mr. Wilcox. 
it's a shame to call his face copper color complained margaret he has a remarkably good complexion for a man of his age mrs mont triumphant elsewhere could afford to concede mr wilcox his complexion she passed on from it to the plan of campaign that her nieces should pursue in the future margaret tried to stop her helen did not take the news quite as i expected but the wilcox nerve is dead in her really and so there is no need for plans it's as well to be prepared no it's as well not to be prepared because her thought drew being from the obscure borderland she could not explain in so many words but she felt that those who prepare for all the emergencies of life beforehand may equip themselves at the expense of joy it is necessary to prepare for an examination or a dinner party or a possible fall in the price of stock those who attempt human relations must adopt another method or fail because i'd sooner risk it was her lame conclusion but imagine the evenings exclaimed her aunt pointing to the mansions with the spout of the watering can turn the electric light on here and there and it's almost the same room one evening they may forget to draw their blinds down and you'll see them and the next you yours and they'll see you impossible to sit out on the balconies impossible to water the plants or even speak imagine going out of the front door and they come out opposite at the same moment and yet you tell me that plans are unnecessary and you'd rather risk it i hope to risk things all my life oh margaret most dangerous but after all she continued with a smile there's never any great risk as long as you have money oh shame what a shocking speech money past the edges of things said miss schlegel god help those who have none but this is something quite new said mrs mont who collected new ideals as a squirrel collects nuts and was especially attracted by those that are portable new for me sensible people have acknowledged it for years you and i and the wilcoxes stand upon money as upon islands it is so firm beneath our feet that we forget its very existence it's only when we see someone near us tottering that we realize all that an independent income means last night when we were talking up here round the fire i began to think that the very soul of the world is economic and that the lowest abyss is not the absence of love but the absence of coin i call that rather cynical so do i but helen and i we ought to remember when we are tempted to criticize others that we are standing on these islands and that most of the others are down below the surface of the sea the poor cannot always reach those whom they want to love and they can hardly even escape from those whom they love no longer we rich can imagine the tragedy last june if helen and paul wilcox had been poor people and couldn't invoke railways and motor-cars to part them that's more like socialism said mrs mont suspiciously call it what you like i call it going through life with one's hand spread open on the table i'm tired of these rich people who pretend to be poor and think it shows a nice mind to ignore the piles of money that keep their feet above the waves i stand each year upon six hundred pounds and helen upon the same and tibby will stand upon eight and as fast as our pounds crumble away into the sea they are renewed from the sea yes from the sea and all our thoughts are the thoughts of six hundred pounders and all our speeches and because we don't want to steal umbrellas ourselves we forget that below the sea 
people do want to steal them and do steal them sometimes and that what's the joke up here is down there reality there they go there goes Poland Mussebach. Really, for a German she does dress charmingly. Oh, what is it? Helen was looking up at the Wilcox's flat. Why shouldn't she? I beg your pardon. I interrupted you. What was it you were saying about reality? I had walked round to myself as usual, answered Margaret in tones that were suddenly preoccupied. Do tell me this at all events. Are you for the rich or the, for the poor? too difficult ask me another am i for poverty or for riches for riches hurrah for riches for riches echoed mrs mont having as it were at last secured her nut yes for riches money forever so am i and so i am afraid are most of my acquaintances at swanage but i am surprised that you agree with us thank you so much aunt julie while i have talked theories you have done the flowers not at all dear i wish you would let me help you in more important things well would you be very kind would you come round with me to the registry office there is a housemaid who won't say yes but doesn't say no on their way thither they two looked up at the wilcox's flat evie was in the balcony staring most rudely according to mrs Maud. oh yes it was a nuisance there was no doubt of it helen was proof against the passing encounter but margaret began to lose confidence might it reawake the dying nerve if the family were living close against her eyes and frida mosselbach was stopping with them for another fortnight and frida was sharp abominably sharp and quite capable of remarking you love one of the young gentlemen opposite yes the remark would be untrue but of the kind which if stated often enough may become true just as the remark england and germany are bound to fight renders war a little more likely each time than it is made and is therefore made more readily by the gutter press of either nation have the private emotions also their gutter press margaret thought so and feared that good aunt julie and frida were typical specimens of it they might by continual chatter lead helen into a repetition of the desires of june into a repetition they could not do more they could not lead her into lasting love they were she saw it clearly journalism her father with all her defects and wrong-headedness had been literature and had he lived he would have persuaded his daughter rightly the registry office was holding its morning reception a string of carriages filled the streets Mrs. Schlegel waited her turn and finally had to be content with an insidious temporary being rejected by genius housemaids on the ground of her numerous stairs. Her failure depressed her, and though she forgot the failure, the depression remained. On her way home, she again glanced up at the Wilcox's flat and took the rather matronly step of speaking about the matter to Helen. Helen, you must tell me whether this thing worries you. A what? said Helen who was washing her hand for lunch the w's coming no of course not really really then she admitted that she was a little worried on mrs wilcox's account she implied that mrs wilcox might reach backward into deep feelings and be pained by things that never touched the other members of that clan i shan't mind if paul points at our house and says there leaves the girl who tried to catch me but she might if even that worries you you could arrange something 
There is no reason we should be near people who displease us or whom we displease. Thanks to our money, we might even go away for a little. Well, I am going away. Frida's just asked me to step in, and I shan't be back till after the new year. Will that do? Or must I fly the country altogether? Really, Meg? What has come over you to make such a fuss? Oh, I'm getting an old maid, I suppose. I thought I minded nothing, but really, I... I should be bored if you fell in love with the same man twice, and she cleared her throat. You did go red, you know, when Aunt Julie attacked you this morning. I shouldn't have referred to it otherwise. But Helen's laugh rang true as she raised the soapy hand to heaven and saw that never, nowhere and nohow would she again fall in love with any of the Wilcox family, down to its remotest collaterals. End of chapter 7 Recording by Fano Jahangiri